What's up, skeptics? Welcome to another episode of Reason to Doubt, your source for all things skeptical. I am Jordan with Jared, and today we are joined by Hugh Ferry, uh, Shroud Skeptic Extraordinaire, all the way from the UK. Uh, he was kind enough to uh, stay up a bit late to come record with us. So how's it going, Hugh? Uh, it's absolutely fine. It's nine o'clock at night, and my next appointment is breakfast at seven o'clock tomorrow morning. So I can be with you for 10 hours, if that's what you'd like. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, well, we are going to be talking about the Shroud of Turin. We did a series of videos a while back on that, and uh, we did not anticipate just how much there was to look into with the Shroud of Turin when we embarked on that. Uh, but we were greatly helped in our research by uh, the things that Hugh has done. We use his websites and the stuff that he's talked about extensively. And so we thought it might be cool to have him on to talk about some of the uh, little issues that were brought up frequently in the comment section, things that you, the viewers, thought were interesting that we didn't address in the videos, because even though they were three, they were each over an hour long, uh, there's still only so much time. So, uh, but before we get into that, Hugh, why don't you uh, briefly tell everybody who you are and like why you got into looking at the Shroud. Right. Well, I've been a, uh, a school science teacher for about 40 years, but at the same time, I also taught quite a lot of medieval history and uh, perhaps relevantly I taught at a Catholic school for all that time. And so combining science, history and Catholicism, uh, I got to know about the Shroud quite early on. Uh, I became a member of the British Society for the Turin Shroud and I was uh, following Ian Wilson's books, convinced that it was genuine. Um, for about 20 years. And then I joined in with two, um, uh, two, two internet chat areas, um, one of which was very friendly, and that was Dan Porter's shroudstory.com, which is still bubbling along gently, but was a major forum for shroud discussion, and the James Randi Educational Forum on the Shroud, which no longer exists but it's turned into something similar. Uh, and that had a massively long and very aggressive argument all about the Shroud. Um, and eventually in trying to defend the Shroud's authenticity, I realized that more and more and more of the evidence that I produced was in fact very, very weak indeed. And the more I read the uh, primary source documents uh, about it, the less convinced I was. And we're going to discover quite a lot about that when we look at these uh, apparently in, uh, incontrovertible things like the flagrum, the hand wound, the uh, AB blood and the pollen, uh, which um, you mentioned in the subjects that we might begin to talk about. So uh, I then did a huge amount of work on that, began to publish some papers on academia.edu. And although uh, at that time I was always um, fairly obviously skeptical, Somebody very enlightened suggested that I take over the edit editorship of the newsletter of the British Society for the Turin Shroud, which in those days didn't mean the British Society in favour of the authenticity of the Turin Shroud. It just meant the British Society for the study of the Turin Shroud. Um, since I um, left the editorship, it's become much more partisan, uh, which is fair enough, but I, I don't contribute to that so much. Then uh, feeling that I ought to be properly qualified, I did a the postgraduate uh, certificate in Shroud study, Studies at a university in Rome and, uh, and, and passed that. So um, now I've become everyone's resident skeptic. I think I've taken over from, um, <laughs> from Joe Nickell, who was the, um, the world's 
sort of favorite skeptic, but he's quite old now and tends to go back to uh, old researches that he's done, whereas my researches are continuous and ongoing. Right up to, you'll be delighted to know, uh, about two or three hours ago. So there we are. Yeah, that's uh, that's yeah. a great story. And I, because we are a show dedicated to skepticism, I just want to highlight uh, you're a believer, right? You're a Christian. I'm a Christian. Yes, I believe in the resurrection. I believe that Jesus existed and died and then people saw him after he died. Uh, I would point out that I'm a Catholic and Catholics are slightly less uh, obsessed with the uh, English words of the King James Bible as being actually written <laughs> parchment by God personally with a quill than, um, yeah. than Southern Baptists. And, right. And but uh, so, uh, something that I think can sometimes get lost when we're talking the internet is, is that skepticism isn't like the sole domain of atheists. Anybody who wants to look at evidence and honestly come to conclusions can be a skeptic. Oh, and absolutely. so absolutely. the story of I, yeah. I was in this position, I looked into it, turns out I was wrong, I changed my mind, that's excellent skepticism and anybody yeah. can do yeah. that. Well, a friend of mine is uh, Andrea Nicolotti, um, it, who lives in Turin, um, who is also a, a Catholic like myself and couldn't be more skeptical. <laughs> Yeah, he's more of a historian. Excellent. He he studies the history of the shroud and so on. Hmm. Right. So uh, without further ado, we can dive right in. Uh, we arranged beforehand some of the topics, like you mentioned, uh, that people had brought up. The one, some of them we talked briefly about, but we haven't fully covered. So uh, we can just go top to bottom. Uh, we hear all the time that the wound pattern on the the turn man, and in case anybody who's is watching this who like has no idea what the Shroud of Turin is, uh, go pause the video and go watch our previous videos where we kind of talk about what the Shroud is. We're going to assume you come with some kind of basic knowledge for this video. Um, it's the big cloth, the one with the picture on it. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> yes. so that cloth with the picture on it uh, that they purport, that, they, that <laughs> the, the proponents believe is Jesus. Um, one of the reasons they say it is authentic is that there's a there are wounds they say on the person uh, that are indicative of Roman torture devices and are so accurate that they couldn't have been made by a human forger or something at a later time. Basically, somebody in the Middle Ages wouldn't have had the requisite knowledge to do the thing. Yeah. So, what do you have to say about that? Right. Well, I'd like to share a screen. So on the uh, right left hand side, you can see this is part of a of a PowerPoint presentation, which I shall be giving in a local church in about a week's time. However, uh, on the left hand side, we can see the shroud. Um, this is Barry Schwartz's photo from 1978. Nowadays, it, it looks slightly different from that. And it's uh, barely not, almost nothing about it is easily discernible. So I've taken a chunk of it. That's the back of the man and uh, changed its contrast slightly so that we can see these little marks dotted about uh, all over the shroud. Can we see that? And they, they some yes. of them yep. look very like sort of dumbbell shapes. And then the third picture shows those shapes accentuated with with red red blobs. So far, so good. And mm. then above it, we have a flagrum. And as we can see, it's a wooden handle. It's got three thongs and it's got two uh, metal balls, leaden balls at the end of each thong. And sure enough, 
you can watch some wonderful videos with, I think, especially the um, uh, county pathologist or a pathologist from Los Angeles called Robert Bucklin holding uh, a flagrum very like this and showing how these two leaden balls actually match exactly the picture, uh, the, 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 the leaden balls on the shroud. They're the same shape and they're the same size. And everyone goes, ooh, that proves that the flagrum, the marks, must have been made by a flagrum. But we must hold our horses. Well, I'm convinced. Thanks for coming, guys. There you go. <laughs> but of course, as, as you know, but perhaps some of your listeners don't, the flagrum was, in fact, um, reverse engineered. In other words, they started with the marks on the shroud, decided that they looked as if they were made by two little metal balls exactly an inch and a half apart, and then made a flagrum with little balls an inch and a half apart. And to their amazement and delight, sure enough, the metal balls matched the <laughs> markings on the shroud. Hooray, hooray, hooray. The people who don't realize that think that they're actually looking at a reproduction of a flagrum. But there aren't any flagra. We can't find any archaeological flagra at all. A couple looking a bit like this have been discovered in various museums. And because they look vaguely as if they've got sort of dangly bits on them, people have said, ah, look, we found a Roman flagrum. And in fact, uh, I think the top one uh, is from Herculaneum, or at least is claimed to be from Herculaneum, although it was actually bought in Naples, I think. And the bottom one is from the Vatican Museum. But it is now generally thought that these are, in fact, they are very, very similar uh, to almost uh, a huge collection of Etruscan uh, horseware. Uh, it, when Etruscan mm. cavalry marched, went into battle, they had these things dangling from them the whole time. They are absolutely not and most unlikely to be Roman flagra. And uh, if they were Roman flagra, they wouldn't inflict uh, the kind of wound, as you can see, they don't look anything like the model flagrum, which is uh, made there. So if those aren't flagra, what does a Roman flagrum look like? Well, we've got some examples here. At the top, you can see uh, a man attacking a, 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 man, a man at the top on the right hand side, attacking a man with a spear. Uh, and he just seems to be holding a stick with a couple of thongs. It doesn't have any balls on it at all. He's just having a basically a whip. And on the bottom, we have a, a fairly typical example, as described in Roman literature, of a Roman flagrum, which has its three thongs, and they have a series of um, basically bones tied onto them. Uh, you can see down the side there. And that's what a Roman flagrum actually looks like. And as you can imagine, it won't inflict anything like the kind of wounds that we see on the shroud. If it was me, I would have got uh, a potato and cut a little marking out of it and then dipped it in some ink and then gone dab, 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 dab. Oh, possibly dipped it in blood. I don't know. And then gone dab, 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 dab and made all those markings by hand, which is what I think actually happened. Now, now for the, is it, are, you, are, you, are you ready for a gory bit? Um, Again. Sure. Uh, trigger warning. We'll, we'll end the video when uh, people are watching this. You can do yeah. timestamps. And so if you don't want to see any gore, you'll just be able to skip ahead. Well, um, the thing is, we... Um, how do you spell Philippines? Philippines. 
Easter, and what should we call it, scourging. Um, people want to know what a real scourging looks like. And every year, people wander around Manila being flogged so and being crucified. One chap has been crucified over and over again, uh, I think 46 times. Um, let me see. Man, was the first time not, not enough for him? Remove with <laughs> Jesus Jesus stopped at one. <laughs> oh, no, he, he, he's crucified every year. Right. Do you see these guys here? They've got leather yeah. thongs and they're going around whipping each other. And this is what their look, backs look like. Now, we haven't got any studs or, or bones or anything like that. Uh, and you can see that the back is completely covered in blood and that we have uh, perhaps lines of scourging, but we certainly don't have any um, distinct little patterns. You flog yourself and you end up a complete mess. Here they are all flogging each other as they go along. And we can see that the backs are completely covered in blood. Now, the, there's a lot of argument about whether the shroud man was washed or not. But if he was completely covered in blood like that and the blood all liquefied and made a mark on the shroud, it certainly wouldn't look anything like the shroud as we see it. Um, end of, end of uh, gruesome bit. And back to that. And that is um, all I've got to say about the flagrum. And I can come back to here. You, have I stopped sharing? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And we're back. So, to right. So the picture that everybody sees with the two balls and like they match to the shroud. Yeah. That is not found anywhere in the archaeological historical record. It's no. a, it's no. fabricated it's, it's purely hard. from the shroud itself. That's right. Yeah. That's why it matches the shroud wounds so precisely. I just think that's my. <laughs> well, that's a fast way to, to get confirmation if you uh, know the target ahead of time. And, this, and to just drive the point home, when we actually go back to look at for Roman flagrum, the stuff we do find doesn't resemble the one that they recreated. There's never in any, any mention of little balls yeah. on the end of thongs. There's lots of mentions of bits of pottery, funnily enough, and, um, and, and bones and uh, massive descriptions of how backs were. I mean, you can imagine being flogged with three thongs completely covered with bones, like a, a, a row of beads on a necklace. They, uh, they really did rip you to pieces. Uh, if anyone's yeah. seen Mel Gibson's snuff movie, as I've heard it called, The Passion of the Christ, um, you know, the, uh, the the poor, whoever it is, Jim Kelsey or something, has his, has his back almost ripped off um, by the, 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 these savage things, which is, would have happened to most uh, Roman floggings. Not these rather delicate little then, uh, bruises. And then the other part of that, too, as you mentioned, uh, whether or not the body of supposedly Jesus was washed or not and then laid there on the cloth, it would have either pooled blood after the fact, but the the cloth shows like very distinct like lines without any sort of pooling or anything. So no, no, no. It does, I mean, yes, what would right. the explanation for that be? Yeah. Well, there seems to be some yeah, dispute I, as to whether those marks are, as it were, signs of bruising, in which case they are part of the image or signs of blood in which you see that that you can have this lovely uh distinction which shroud people usually make between the image and the blood and on the say the arm um or, or the face we've got the image which is the face and the, the, the hair and the eyes and nose and moustache and then we've got the blood which is quite distinct and it's a different color and it looks different 
But right. in some yeah. parts of the shroud, it starts getting very muddled as to what we're actually seeing. Are we seeing, are those wound marks made of blood? In which case, every one is a distinct little wound and none of them flow into each other and they're all very perfect. Or are they part of the image? In which case, um, being brighter than the shroud, they should be raised welts, as it were. Um, but that's not what happens when people get flogged. You don't raise these nice little bubbles. So it's uh, it's very difficult for people to explain that. And so they, they undergo something which I called cognitive assonance. Cognitive dissonance <laughs> is is when, um, you all know these, being, being log logicians and yeah. philosophers. Cognitive dissonance is when you get in a muddle because you're trying to rec uh, uh, reconcile two opposing beliefs and it causes a certain amount of consternation. Cognitive assonance is, is when you get out of a muddle by believing two completely different things at the same time. And you're delighted by it. And most Shroud people um, feel that, that they can believe two completely different things at exactly the same time, and it makes them feel better, not worse. It's a psychological phenomenon not usually discussed by people like yourself. I see that a lot when uh, we get into like Rob Rucker's or Bob Rucker's, sorry, Bob Rucker's uh, neutron irradiation thing, which is mutually exclusive from the patch hypothesis. And yet Absolutely. I'll see both of them like advanced at the same time, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously, and uh, the um, the carbon dating um, thing, which is uh, Ray Rogers's paper in Thermochemica Acta, uh, which in which he tries to demonstrate that there is um uh, matter and uh, and uh, various dyes and things and that the um radiocarbon corner is not part of the shroud so everyone goes yep that's it ray rogers he's your man perfect scientist but of course ray rogers's expertise was on uh damage done by nuclear radiation and um he was absolutely adamant that the shroud could not have been, the image could not have been formed by any kind of radiation. So if you think Ray Rogers is your hero, then you cannot <laughs> believe that radiation is part of it. But then if you think that radiation is definitely how the shroud image was made, then poor old Ray Rogers was wrong. And you can't take what he says uh, as gospel. But no, we'll, we'll, we'll swallow the whole thing and go, it all says the shroud is not. <laughs> We can look at, uh, <laughs> uh, well, we'll come to the hand wound. We can look at Robert Bucklin, who says that the wound in the hand was here. And then we can look at Fred Zugiby, who says, no, no, it wasn't. You're an idiot. The wound in the hand was here. Well, you know, they, they both, ah, no, no, that's two doctors who both firmly believe in the shroud. It must be authentic. But they believe different things. Weird. So, yeah, let's talk about the uh, hand wound. That's another thing kind of similar uh, the argument goes that if it was made by a, a medieval artist, they would have put the hand, the wound in like the palm. Yeah. Uh, but an actual crucifixion uh, victim would have had a wound further up the arm because if you put it in the palm, it would rip out and then it wouldn't work. So uh, that shows that it has anatomic and that the the person that the if a person made it, they would have required anatomical knowledge beyond what would have been available to someone in the Middle Ages. Can you see a thing that says here is a photo of a hand? It's my hand. Yes. Yes. The red dot in the middle of it, where most it's a lovely hand. artists place their nails. Now I turn the hand over. 
but then reverse it, um, flip it horizontally so that it matches the first hand. This is the back of my hand. And I put some dots where my knuckles are. And I put a black dot in the middle of the back of the hand. Yeah. And now I'm going to put Tracking. those two hands on top of each other. Showing where the a nail through the front of the hand would emerge. And you'll be amazed. It's very, very close to the knuckles. Can you see my cursor? Yeah. Can you see the it angle? It is actually a lot closer than I'd have expected. Can you yeah. see the angle between those two knuckles there? Whereas if you put a dot on the back of the hand, the angle is here. Yeah. And if mm -hmm. the dot was anywhere near the wrist, the angle would be really steep up there and back down to there. You, do you follow the logic to this? Yep. Right. So oh, basically good. using the knuckles as a reference. Point. There we are. So I get a little protractor and measure everything. This is where the angle would be if a nail was punched through the palm of the hand. This is where the uh, nail would be if it was punched through basically the middle of the back of the hand. And this angle here would be where it would be if it was going through the wrist. Happy with that? I knew you'd love it. Here is the shroud. <laughs> there are some knuckles and there is the angle, 64 degrees. Now, is that more like 45 or 91? Well, it's about halfway. I would say it's about here. So the wound in the uh, back in the shroud is too far forward, assuming that's it, uh, than it would be if it was in the wrist. If it was in the wrist, it would have to be up here somewhere. There we go. There is 64 degrees, which is where the shroud wound actually is. There is 45 degrees, which is where it would be if it was in the wrist. Oh, dear. Now, the next thing is that everybody, I don't think a single commentator that I've ever seen has looked at medieval pictures showing the back of the hand. <laughs> we go on and on. Why, huh? why do that? Why, why look at pictures? Just, we show you know. pictures of the crucifixion, which has got the nail going through the palm of the hand. And we don't seem to notice that uh, the shroud doesn't show the palm of the hand. It shows the back of the hand. But had we bothered, we could find some pictures. Here they are showing uh, pictures of Jesus with wounds in the back of his hand. And then, oh, look at what we can do. We can measure where medieval people put the wounds when they drew them in the back of their hand. Between 50 and 60, there's a 70 there. There's a very big one here, um, 84. There are no um, wounds in the wrist drawn by medieval artists. They're all drawn roughly where they are there. And they're all very commensurate. 67 is exactly where the shroud wound is. This kind of logic tends to upset people. That's 45 degrees. That's where the wound would have to be if the nail went through the wrist. That's where it actually goes through. Happy with that? In the... So, yeah, so is the yeah. argument then that people are saying is that the shroud is actually depicting the wound going through the wrist, but when you actually look at it, 
it's not going through the yeah, wrist. The, 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 the shroud wound is not going through the wrist. It's going where most medieval depictors of the wound on the back of the hand actually put it. So you don't have to say, oh, it's very unrealistic. No medieval artist would have done this, that and the other. Furthermore, there's more. You're going to love this. Um, Bucklin, for Robert Bucklin, following, um, <coughs> what's his name? Pierre Barbet. <coughs> Pierre Barbet, bless him, found some um, corpses of very old, weak people uh, and chopped their arms off. It's, he actually nailed some people complete. But his, his uh, account in his book, uh, A Doctor at Calvary, shows that he, he, he chopped their arms off, nailed them to a plank of wood, and then hung weights from the arms. Uh, with the result that unless the uh, weights were, uh, unless the nails were through the wrists, the arms just tore out. But Fred Zugibi, who was the uh, sort of, uh, who was a New York, Rockwell, Rockwell County, New York uh, coroner's pathologist, he uh, carried out lots more um, uh, examples and said that the trouble with um, Barbe was that he used old dead um, cadavers, whereas live, li live young cadavers are much stronger. And he thought that you could easily nail people through the wrists and they uh, uh, through the palm of the hands and the hands wouldn't tear out, um, especially if the feet were nailed. It wasn't just a question of um, hanging heavy weights from severed arms. If your feet are attached, they take a lot of the weight. So here again, we've got convinced shroudies, but disagreeing with each other. Um, I'm just Hopefully kidding. he didn't actually do these tests, right? Barbie did. Zuggie didn't. No, he did um, crucify. Yeah, because he was people. suggesting live. <laughs> uh, yeah, he crucified yeah. a lot of people, but only by tying them on. Right. Can we have a look at this? So Can... to summarize. Oh, no, hang on. Oh, sorry, you guys. Can you see this? Okay. All right. There we go. So in everybody's hands, you can see the bones there of the hand. And in everybody's mm -hmm. hand, the blue bone is longer than the yellow bone. Is that Does that make sense to everybody? Have a look at your own hand. Yep. The bone between the wrist and the knuckle is longer than the bone between the top knuckle and the, and the second joint down. Everyone can spot that just by looking at their hands. If we look at the shroud, we find that the blue line is slightly shorter than the yellow line. Oh, dearie me. So we can demonstrate that again, the blue line shows the wound actually in the middle of the hand, not anywhere near the wrists. Those two black dots are the famous space of Barbet and another possible nail site. So once again, okay. when we actually look at the anatomy of these things, and this is going to happen again and again and again, because this is why I drive people mad, because um, I don't take anybody's word for it. I'll actually get to the anatomy and tear it apart and say, no, the shroud wound is not in the wrist. And as you can see, I think um, anybody looking at that will go, hmm, he does have a point. I must go away and research it further myself. Uh, right now you can summarize 
I'm going to guess that will not actually be the reaction that you get. <laughs> but uh, okay, so <laughs> to summarize, uh, everyone says that the shroud man's uh, nail wounds go through the wrist on the shroud. Yeah. But if you actually use the anatomy that you can see, the knuckles as a reference point and the angle between that and the wound pattern and the length of the bones, they don't indicate a wrist wound. They indicate a hand wound, a hand wound that just so happens to go exactly where medieval artists put it. Yes. <laughs> so there's no reason to suppose that the medieval artist could not have known where to put the blood. There's a lot of... Now, you see, so obviously the, just... the man in the wound, the man in the shroud looks as though he's been crucified. But then lots of medieval people drew pictures of people who'd been crucified. It's the contention of some people that the, um, the, the marks on the shroud show information that the medieval artist could not have known. Such as the fact that if you put yeah. a nail through the palm of the hands, it would tear out. But as we can see, it doesn't matter whether he knew it or not he still put the wound through the palm of the hand. Exactly. Yeah. I like talking to you. Maybe guys. we could do this at the end. Yeah, maybe we could do this at the end, but I, I think might, right now might be a good time to. Um, so as somebody who used to be on the other side, Hugh, when you were a Shroud believer or a supporter in the authenticity of the Shroud and you were presented with information like this, how did you rationalize or maintain that belief in the authenticity or did you simply just like ignore it and say they don't know what they're talking about? I'm curious well, I about that. I, so. the, the thing was that, and, and this is true of everybody, you read a book and it says, I know a doctor who says this, and you go, fair enough. That's probably true. Um, yeah. there, I mean, there were only one or two things which I thought were, were bonkers at the time and, and, and still think are bonkers. Um, but mostly, you know, somebody makes a, a statement um, the, the 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 wounds must be in the wrist, otherwise the body would tear out. That's what Robert Bucklin and Pierre Barbet said. But then when you read Fred Zugibay's book, he goes, no, that's nonsense. Of course they wouldn't. But that's never quoted to you. You have to read everybody's viewpoint. Um, everybody knows, apparently, the, every pathologist knows how Jesus died. He died of this, that and the other. Well, I've now read the reports of 10 pathologists at least. No, well, about 15 pathologists. But there are 10 different ways in which they think Jesus died from shock to blood loss to asphyxia to heart attacks and all sorts of stuff. Somebody recently decided that they, he died of some kind of um, the injury to his shoulder when he fell off on the way to uh, the, the, the crucifix. And um, Fred Zuckerby think he basically died of blood loss because of the flogging. So, I mean, they can't all be right. But never mind, they all believe in the authenticity of the shroud. So therefore, we'll go for it. And it was that sort of once I started looking at every piece of information and you just think nobody's looked at this and, and seen that, that um, it just doesn't make sense. So talking about blood loss, uh, we can hit the next one, which is the <laughs> blood type. Uh, this is another favorite that uh, this one lo loops in the Sudarium of Oviedo, which we haven't discussed so much on the channel. Mm -hmm. uh, it's basically the alleged face cloth of yeah. Jesus. And the, the point goes that the blood tests have been done on both the Shroud and the Sudarium. They both test as the very rare AB blood type. And so to get two 
artifacts that both have blood on them that happen to be the same rare blood type can't be a coincidence therefore must be jesus i guess or at least at least i guess that the more sophisticated version of the argument would be they must be the same person and then it's left to be well to the audience yes. to well, of course we chance. discover that um uh, you get the impression that hardly anybody has a b blood and that therefore if you find two people with a b blood then they're almost certainly the same well, uh, if you go for, <clears throat> I don't know, I, I think a, a count of it, there's something like 31 million Americans have AB blood. So if you find two samples of AB blood, it doesn't necessarily mean that they come from the same American because there are 31 million possibilities. And yeah. the same they're all descendants of Thomas Jefferson, though. <laughs> However, it's, uh, it's the rarest of the, of the blood groups. And so it would be fair to say, well, let's have a look at it in a little bit more detail. Which is why I've got a red felt tip and a board. There's no stopping me. So let's look at type A blood, which has corpuscles with bits of sugar sticking out of them, which I've drawn as little A's so we can recognize them. And that's what the blood's got. And the uh, serum in which the corpuscles are floating around has anti-B. I'm going to put, I'm not sure this is the right medical term because we don't That's want Cardi. Any, yeah, we don't want any B uh, you said that, yeah. interfering right. with the A blood. So if we test for, for antibodies with some A blood, we'll find that it all clots up. And if we test the corpuscles, with anti-B, we'll find that that clots up. So we recognize how to identify A blood in two ways. Firstly, has it got those on them? And secondly, has the has the blood serum got that? With me so far? And it will yes. not come as any surprise to you to discover that B blood, these are Bs, has got little B sugars attached to the blood cells and anti-A floating about in the serum. And you can test for that and you can test for that. Now, this is where it gets clever because AB blood has got A and B on the corpuscles and consequently nothing in the serum at all. This is why AB blood um, is the, is, you can uh, uh, give it to anybody. Um, is that right? It's a universal recipient. Yeah, no, you, you can give any kind of blood to an AB person because he has no antibodies to fight it. So if you happen to be yeah. an AB blood person, you can get a blood transfusion from anybody because you won't reject it. Hooray, hooray, hooray. That's really good. Uh, now, unfortunately, if I was to take, say, some, uh, what do you call it in America? Strawberry jello. That okay. also has no antibodies. <laughs> so if I Hopefully. test antibodies in AB blood, I find there are no antibodies and therefore it's AB. Hooray. But if I test for jello for AB blood in a similar way, I also find there's no antibodies. So I conclude that that's AB. 
<laughs> and the funny thing is it's much easier and more reliable to test the serum than it is to test the blood corpuscles because the blood corpuscles very easily get damaged. So that when you test for them, you don't detect the sugars. And so this one tends to be the more diagnostic one when you test old blood. Now, a lot of people said, ah, yes, um, earlier on, it's not true that um, all blood reverts to AB type. What is true is that blood corpuscles tend to degrade in such a way that you can't tell the difference between having these anti these um, little antigens stuck on the side of the corpuscles and not. In which case, madder rose or, or jello would also test AB. But the plot thickens because these little thingies also occur independently. Some plants contain the same things, the same sugars, and can be detected as if they were AB blood or A blood or B blood. You have to be sure to start with that you are testing blood. Otherwise, you can get false positives from uh, rose petals. So with the case of the shroud, I think we've got uh, Pierluigi Baima Baloni, who actually, during the 1978 investigation, while the Sterp team were very, very carefully taking tiny little uh, sticky tape samples with a pressure so light that you could barely feel it if they pressed it onto your own thigh, Baima Baloni stuck in some tweezers and was ripping out great chunks of the shroud, um, including bits with lots of blood on it. So when he tested for blood, he was actually testing shroud blood. And unless it was very badly degraded, it probably was AB. I'm, I'm inclined to say, yeah, I think he was going for uh, That's probably right. Um, Kelly Kearse, who's a blood specialist, is not quite so sure that the tests he did were, were in fact sufficiently diagnostic. However, the bloke who did the blood tests on the sudarium, well, there isn't any blood to speak of on the sudarium. It's all just a sort of blur. You can't actually pick out any bits that you could go off and pop in a test tube and test. So he tested from some dust that was scraped off the back of the sudarium. And the, his, the end of his report, which is all in Spanish, says, um, my findings are that I, I, my readings gave an AB reading, but this must be taken with extreme caution as the sample was so impure that we could have had these things uh, derived from dust or plant material or any other material. So we cannot be sure that the sudarium is AB blood at all. It might be, and so might the shroud, but it's not a, 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 a as precise a conclusion as you might guess. And you might think, now, why doesn't everybody know that? Well, the answer is that this report was only published in Spanish. And the only translation of it was a paraphrase by a lady called Janice Bennett, who wrote a book called something like The Sudarium of, Aradio, of Oviedo or something like that, in which she said, there are a lot of technical details, which I won't translate for you because they're much too complicated for you. But basically, they found that the uh, Sudarium blood was AB, which, in fact, they didn't any more than they found that the pollen on the Sudarium came from Israel. No, they didn't find that either. 
Um, there, there was all sorts of things that uh, they, they, they just make up, really. So the paper said, hey, we have this result, but take it with some salt. It may not be good. And the the what got translated from there is it's definitely solid. Go with it and don't question it. That's it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. This this result, and that's the bit that people were repeating. Yeah. But generally speaking, the um, scientists, even bless them, all the stirp scientists, if you read their papers, they tend to be extremely cautious. The idea that the whole of the stirp team, all thirty eight top nuclear physicists and atomic bomb makers, all were instantly converted to the authenticity of the shroud and said it cannot possibly be a painting, absolute nonsense. Uh, most of their papers go. Um, this is a bit of a preliminary investigation, and we wish we knew more about it. There are hardly any which which uh, plump for authenticity. And in fact, I don't think, I think that's a popular myth. Most of them published almost nothing on whether the shroud was Jesus or not. That's a thought. So this, so this argument relies on the, the sudarium actually being the same cloth that would have been in the burial chamber with Jesus when he dematerialized, yeah. right? And that's that's what this hinges on. And then some of the supporting evidence for that is the fact that they both have AB blood. Well, the attempt was to show that they both have AB blood and they well, both have Israeli pollen on them, uh, neither of which yeah. is true. Also, so, so from, now this is something I also don't believe. The sudarium has been carbon dated four times and it's found to be around about 600 or 700 every single time and they go yes well that's much earlier than the shroud so that proves the sudarium is authentic and you just go no it doesn't it proves that the sudarium <laughs> was made in the sixth seventh century but anyway there we <laughs> well no you see actually it was on the ground in a specific spot and then the neutrons see they you know it all comes back they, to the neutrons. <laughs> oh, yeah. they put extra carbon in it <laughs> yeah. okay so uh, trying to translate the whole blood thing. Basically, the things you test for don't come with magical markers saying, hey, I'm blood. You're Correct. testing for sugars, you're testing for antibodies, and the absence of those things would lead to your result saying, hey, it's AB. But basically, an AB result, it can be indistinguishable from a null result. Quite, yes, absolutely right. Especially if the blood corpuscles are very degraded, which they are in the shroud. Guess and it's also expect. very, yeah, and it's also very possible that the blood from the shroud isn't actually blood as well, correct? Like it just, it could or be another. It could have been well, added later. It's it, yes, I think. I mean, there's, there's this uh, very good immunologist called Kelly Kearse who has uh, studied all the blood findings that he possibly can, and gone back to saying, well, um, we can't be sure after all that it's primate blood. Uh, we can't be sure it's human. We can't even be sure it's primate. Um, but he does think it's probably blood, simply because a battery of tests, you can go, yes, well, if you mix this, 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 and this, you could get fake blood, which responded chemically in exactly the same way. But would anybody do that? I mean, his one of his papers says that um, we can say it's primate blood, but we can't say it's human. So uh, technically speaking, it could as easily be orangutan blood as human blood. But how many orangutans were there around in the Middle Ages? So although in, scientifically in, you can't distinguish between the two, historically right. you can suggest that probably there were more humans than orangutans about. 
And then you'll find people who go, yes, sir, but, but who would be so horrible as to, as to cut open a human and dribble his blood all over a cloth? And the answer is nearly everybody. It was the single most common intrusive medical procedure for nearly a thousand years. Giving blood or letting blood. Letting blood, yeah. People did. You let the bad blood out. And if you wanted blood to paint on a cloth, there was gallons of it available. It wasn't peculiar at all. Right. That's something that always struck me when I hear it's like, oh, it's human blood. It's like, well, it's not like humans are rare in medieval Europe. Like, it's not hard to find human blood, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, oh, they would okay. have to slaughter a pig and then bring it up from the kitchen. And the blood would be in a bowl. And by the time they got it to the studio, it would all have clotted. So they couldn't have done it. No, but they could have had a bloke sitting next to the shroud with a doctor just cutting his wrist open or whatever they did. Cutting it in sort of lower arm, really, yeah. Yeah. Uh, human blood, not a difficult resource to acquire in any age. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> but definitely. People are less prone to, uh, to to dripping blood into a cup daily than they were. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so you mentioned uh, briefly the pollen, and this one uh, is one that I don't think we mentioned briefly, but I don't think we gave it the time that we really needed to in order to uh, to really explain it. So okay. wanted to explain what's going on with this pollen. Right. Um, we've got a chap called Max Fry, who did his doctorate on the botany of Sicily. Uh, he's a, a Swiss Swiss criminologist founded the uh, Swiss Bureau of Forensic Investigation, wrote an absolutely seminal paper on the extracting of forensic evidence from textiles using sticky tape. So he was the top man um, in his job. And anybody who says that uh, he was a complete clown just asking around, cancel that if you like, uh, is, is, um, is being unfair to him. So he gets his sticky tape, and he rubs it all over the shroud and he gets some samples, nearly all, I may say, from 1973, not from the Sturp investigation of 1978. Um, but most of them uh, were from 1973. And then he goes off. Now, how do you compare your pollen? Because there aren't any, this is brand new science. There, there are very, very few databases. And what there are tend to be fantastically site specific. So there were a beautiful set of diagrams from a, a you know a, a park in uh, in in, a, in town in Switzerland, but nothing from the woods of Switzerland or or the fields of France or something like that. So Fry has this clever idea of saying, well, if I go and get some pollen from the area where the shroud might have been, then I can match it up. So imagine, as you'll see in a minute. He starts off with the pollen and it looks all spiky like this. Sorry, this looks just like blood. <laughs> but you'll see what I mean in a minute. <laughs> so then he goes to Israel and he collects some plants. And sure enough, one of those plants has pollen that looks like this. And he goes, there we go. I've got it. Now, what he doesn't realize is that just about every thistle, of which there are thousands of species all over the world, all have pollen, which look like this. 
had he gone and collected his samples from Peru or Japan or South Africa or Norway, he could have matched his shroud pollen to his sample and said, there we are, the shroud comes from Japan. Now, we can sort of tell that he did this because of the way he was so specific with his pollen. Can I share again? Right, down the left-hand side, you can hardly see it, but it's not really important. We can see Fry's table of, um, of his species. And as you can see, let's whack it up huge, almost all of it is accurate to the nearest species. Now, this was examined, has been examined by at least four uh, different um, pollen specialists who said that even today, we cannot identify individual species um, in, in the vast majority of cases. For example, he goes back down to here. Can you see all these? Here are your thistles. Can you hear me? I've got a bit of an echo there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So all of them, spiky pollen. Do they all come from Israel? No, some of them come from Scotland. Some of them come from Europe. Some of them come from America. So if you find a spiky pollen on the shroud, it could be any one of these. But if the only one you've got is one from Israel, you go, oh, it must be that one. Um, up at the top here, I've got a lovely list of six good reasons why um, he's likely to have been mistaken. For a start, the, to get, he had about 200 pollen grains, uh, not including one great wadge of, of all exactly the same pollen grains, but we don't need to talk about that. We're just saying that 200 different pollen grains dotted about his sticky tape samples are neatly divided into nearly 60 different species. That's ridiculous. The More importantly, too much entomophilus pollen. Now, pollen is either distributed by the wind or it's distributed by insects. If it is distributed by the wind, then it blows off in its thousands of millions, floats about in the air and falls on the ground, the houses, clothes, sheets, whatever. If a plant produces um, entomophilus pollen, which means insect-loving pollen, it holds its pollen quite tightly and various insects like bees have to sit on the flower, stick their noses into it, wiggle their bums in it and get covered in it and the pollen sticks to them and then they fly to the next flower where they rub around and the pollen comes off. What it doesn't do is just fall off uh, and blow in the wind onto the nearest sheet. So if you've got a sheet which has been outside, it's most unlikely to have more insect-borne pollen than wind-borne pollen. But sure enough, most of Fry's pollens were insect-borne. Now, I think the reason for that was that when he went off on his collecting trips, he mostly collected flowers, like, you know, yellow and blue with petals and, and, and scent. And those are nearly all from insect-bearing um, uh, insect pollen because the flowers and the scent are there to attract insects. Plants like trees, especially like fir trees, which don't attract insects because they rely on the wind, they don't have flowers. And Fry didn't collect many of those. Um, the various other things which we can go into slightly. Uh, the geographical distribution is completely unrealistic. There's far too many plants from Israel 
compared to Europe. We don't know how long the shroud was just left flapping in the wind, but we do know that it spent uh, far longer in Europe than it, even if it was original, authentic, it spent far longer in Europe than it did in Israel and should have collected more pollen from Israel than it did from Europe. But no, the botanical distribution, I mentioned this, most pollen assemblages consist of tree and grass. That's because trees are the principal source of windborne pollen and there's a lot of grass about. Not fries, which contains hardly any tree pollen at all. Various people who've studied pollen from other sources describe the pollen as being coated or degraded in one way. The bumps have worn off or it's got um, uh, some sort of uh, limestone coating or something like that on it. Whereas uh, Fry considered that his pollen looked perfectly fresh. We might also say that Fry published some micrographs in his report in Shroud Spectrum International, and the micrographs were not from the Shroud. He never published any um, scanning electron micrographs from the Shroud. He, um, he, he chose them from, uh, from databases, from well, from books, I should say. And uh, so the fact that they look really clean and nice, and goes, look, you can easily identify this. Well, I dare say you could, but it's not Shroud pollen. Shroud pollen is much more difficult to identify. It's stuck to the shroud for a start. Uh, and finally, even today, it is very difficult to identify pollen to the nearest species. So far, so good. Now, let me tell you an interesting story, which is that I was listening to the radio the other day and I heard uh, a, 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 an interview with Britain's most senior, um, recently retired, um, pollen specialist. Her name is Patricia Wiltshire. Here she is. Oops, that's new tab. That can't be right. There we go. Can you see Patricia Wiltshire there? Professor Pat yes. Patricia yep. Wiltshire, born 1942, <clears throat> Monmouth, forensic scientist for years, high, pro uh, high profile forensic scientist, the Soham murder inquiry. There were two little girls um, who were uh, buried under a bush, basically. And she, uh, her evidence about which uh, pollen was growing there and when it was growing there helped to pin the um, helped to pin the the um, victim the the, not the perpetrator down and bring him to justice. And literally, this was so weird. Two hours before this uh, this uh, interview, uh, this podcast that I'm doing now, I had an email from her. Here we go. And we go four hours. That's four hours now. A few years ago, I was asked to examine the original pollen preparations from the Turin Shroud. I can say unequivocally that one could never say that what was retrieved was exclusive to Jerusalem. Furthermore, the panological methods and interpretations were just silly and substandard. So uh, sometimes people like to throw experts out, <laughs> and we have a nice battle of my expert is better than your expert. Very rarely do we actually have a direct quote from an expert uh, saying that. And doesn't get doesn't get much it? more unequivocal than uh, absolutely one hundred percent not. <laughs> she didn't. She didn't sound as if she was uncertain about her findings. No, <laughs> not at all. Yeah. Anyway, this um, that 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 sums up those four. I mean, you you may you may have some more. Um, no, I, I I think that's a great summary. The I think the pollen is I think uh, 
given a lot more weight than it deserves, uh, probably because of the tone of the original research. But I don't think that people have like kind of looked back. Like if you just took how it was presented in the 70s and then never looked at it again, it yeah. seems pretty strong. But if you look at what subsequent experts have said. But one of the I things, would... sorry, one of the things that bothers me is that people who are convinced that the shroud is authentic and often people who give lectures and especially people who are called experts have never looked at the primary sources and they've never investigated them. Um, even scientists would much rather just accept the conclusions and not investigate them at all. Sorry, Jared, you were saying something. Right. I was going to ask because uh, it seemed like you had some uh, some admiration for Max Fry's um, just work in forensics and stuff. But do you think he was being sloppy when it came to his uh, investigation into the pollen and his research into that? Or was that just not his area of expertise? Well, it wasn't anybody's area of expertise. It was brand new. So he, I think he allowed his, um, well, I think actually he was, his, his uh, expedition was paid for by, uh, I mean, he didn't go off, just go off on his own. His, his, his expedition was paid yeah. for and, and accompanied and uh, by some very sincere shroud believers. But uh, as I say, had he been, uh, more modern, he would have he would have looked at the pollen databases, which are available now to anybody who cares to look on the uh, internet. And all those pollens which I showed you just now were taken off paldat.org, which has got the pollens of thousands and thousands of plants from all over the world. And you don't any longer uh, just take a piece of pollen and just look at a place where you think it might have come from and go, oh, look, they look the same, therefore they're the same. Um, that's that's not reasonable. Uh, pollen doesn't no. tend to be looked at in that way anyway. You get a, a sort of a pollen horizon and you start going, well, this has got a lot of um, trees that grow near water or something like that. And it, it, because most pollen studies are not forensic, they, they are uh, they're archaeological. And you, you take out a, a scoop of, of, um, of earth uh, from, a, from an archaeological dig, maybe a couple of meters, and you check the pollen assemblages every 10 centimeters and that shows you how the climate of that um mm. area has changed but it, it doesn't amount to pinning down to precise species almost at all you, you'll have five or six indicator species or even indicator groups which which sort of present the pattern the other question i had about pollen which i don't know if has been made clear or not is can you is it possible to take a pollen and look at it and say this species of pollen is from this period in time or is did pollen change drastically you know like um no, no there, there, there has been and that i think that was just a genuine misunderstanding there are some uh, people who say oh the pollen found on the shroud some species of it are now extinct uh that's nonsense that uh, there are no species that were extinct um because if there were we wouldn't be able to compare the shroud pollen to modern pollen and identify right? it point. um <laughs> Uh, but but also uh, you know, the, the the plants have not gone extinct, so that, I think there that, was, that was just a misunderstanding. There there wasn't like an ancient database of of pollen that we could Stink reference. Pollen. For no, that's right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you mentioned briefly, uh, well, you you talked about like it, it's bad methodology to go basically look at your destination and compare. And mm -hmm. uh, another point 
which beyond this four, but you had, you said you just kind of talked about the limestone, which it sounded oh, yes. like to me they did something kind of similar. Uh, so do you want to expound on that one? Yes, I do. Again, um, an article... <laughs> Sorry, Jared. Stop laughing. It's very serious. Um, Sorry. <laughs> a, uh, an article appeared in the uh, Biblical Archaeological Review uh, some years ago by uh, Joseph Kolbeck, who was an analytical chemist, and Eugenia Natowski, who was an archaeologist. And they're good, good, well-qualified people. You see, I think um, I think it's very easy to pick on someone and go, this man was an idiot. Everyone picks on Walter McCrone, for example. And if you're a shrouder, you go, he's an idiot. Whereas he was by far the most important and influential scientist ever to be associated with the shroud. And he may have made a mistake, but you can't accuse him of being an idiot. Anyway, so these two people, uh, Kolbeck and Natowski, were uh, sincerely interested in what they found. Uh, they both took lots and lots of photographs of the stirp uh, slides, for example, which remain our just about our only good database um, for them if we want to see what, what um, was actually on these colored slides. Anyway, they then had a, had a, a clever scheme that they thought they'd found some some minerals, some grains of mineral. Uh, Colbeck looked at them through a microscope and decided they were aragonite, which is not an incredibly rare form of limestone. Uh, in fact, it's an incredibly common form of limestone. It's going to surprise between a quarter and a third of all the limestone in the world. But because it is less common than calcite, it's nearly always referred to in shroud circles as incredibly rare, which is just anyway. Um, so they took some, they found some samples and fairly typically they took the samples from the shroud, which was just a few grains. And they thought, let's compare this with samples from Jerusalem. Now, had it been you or me, they'd have said, let's compare this with samples from Jerusalem, France, Peru, Japan, Norway, and see how distinctive it is. Well, uh, anyway, they sent it off to another superb scientist called Ricardo Levi Setti, who had just invented uh, a, a device or was a principal pioneer in studying rock samples uh, spectrographically to find out what elements were in them. And this is what they published. Here we go. So this diagram here, Jerusalem limestone, limestone on shroud fibers. This was published and it was described as, as an unusually close match. And if you look at it, there are sort of four raggedy prongs on the Jerusalem limestone. And there are four raggedy plong, prongs on the shroud limestone. So you go, there you go. That's a close match. This proves that the limestone on the shroud is, uh, is of the same composition as the limestone in Jerusalem. And nobody at all did any further work on it until yours truly found that Eugenia Nitowski published these two graphs in slightly greater detail, which I could then expand and put my own uh, grid to. And you can see that my grid, which is the black one on top, matches the gray one underneath absolutely perfectly. I could then put a value on all the points that they made. And here you can see at the top, these are the metal ions, I may say. So we've got uh, sodium and a whole bunch of magnesium, aluminium, 
and then some potassium, calcium, and so on. And I could then write these numbers down, which I did here. And immediately we can go, oh, wait a minute. They can't be that similar. If there are 2,800 counts per channel of sodium on the shroud, but only 700 in Jerusalem limestone. But then maybe uh, the shroud has a bit of salt on it, which is distorting the uh, effect slightly. So perhaps it'd be better not to talk about sodium. But we can look at other stuff. We can say that magnesium, now around the world, magnesium comes in three different isotopes. And basically, most of it's magnesium-24, and there's a little bit of magnesium-25, uh, uh, a little bit of magnesium-26. So the proportions of magnesium are about right. But there seems to be a great deal more magnesium on the shroud than there is in Jerusalem. And I won't go through the whole table, but if I go across here, I can now go, well, let's take, for example, that when you get out a lump of limestone, it's nearly always mixed with quartz. It's very rarely pure carbonate. And the amount of quartz that it's mixed with can be diagnostic as to whereabouts it came from, especially uh, particular quarries. So we look at Jerusalem, 99.3% carbonate, 0.7 silicon oxide. We look at the shroud, 93% carbonate and 7% silicon oxide. And we look at a limestone quarry near Paris, 95% carbonate, 5% silicon oxide. And we ask ourselves, is the limestone on the shroud more like the Jerusalem limestone or more like the Parisian limestone? And we go, well, frankly, it looks more like the Paris limestone than it does like the Jerusalem limestone. And then the next thing is that the carbonate fraction of limestone, um, the calcium ions can be exchanged for magnesium ions. And so by looking at the calcium magnesium proportion, we can identify where the um, shroud limestone might have, or any limestone might have come from. Sure enough, here's Jerusalem, 98% calcium, 2% magnesium. Here's the shroud, 85% calcium, 15% magnesium. And here's Paris, 87% calcium, 13% magnesium. Again, the shroud is much more like the limestone on the shroud is much more like the Parisian limestone than it is like the Jerusalem limestone. But if you didn't have any Parisian limestone, you only took the shroud and Jerusalem, then you might think that having the fact that it had more calcium than magnesium meant that they were both pretty similar. And you might be thinking, how the hell does he know about Paris? Well, you see, because I've looked up Law Holmes, Charles Little and Edward Sayers paper, Elemental Characteristic of Medieval Limestone Sculpture from Parisium and Burgundian Sources. Why hasn't any shroudy done the same? Because they rather take this diagram and go, this shows that the limestone is identical. Let's leave it at that. Makes me so cross. <laughs> Yeah, uh, when I was looking at this paper, uh, if as I recall, the paper compared the strontium to calcium ratio, mm -hmm. and they looked at the cloth, they looked at Jerusalem, and they looked at like the cathedral that the cloth was in, and they're like, "Oh, well, the shroud is closer to Jerusalem than it is to ca the cathedral, therefore it comes from Jerusalem." And I'm like, "Well, that tells me nothing. Like, I don't know what limestone normally is like. Like, <laughs> oh yeah, no. Well, you can find out, uh, and I do." Um, 
Now, in fact, this uh, the strontium was nothing to do with the shroud. The strontium is from um, the sudarium. The, 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 oh, the shroud right. people didn't, didn't find any strontium worth measuring. However, so you're talking about Cesar Barta, who looked at some limestone particles from the most bloody part of the sudarium, which is where we think the nose probably was. And if I say we've got Oviedo here and we've got Jerusalem here, this is not geographical. This is they are they are different limestones. And the Oviedo limestone, the uh, Sudarium limestone was there. Sorry, let's move out the way. And so as a result, we find that the Sudarium and Jerusalem much closer together than the Sudarium and Oviedo. Therefore, you might think that's good evidence that the Sudarium came from Jerusalem. Yes? Be convinced. You're looking suspicious. You can. You can. I, I'll try to suspend my normal skepticism. <laughs> you do that. So off we go. Why hasn't anybody else done this? Let's look up the sudarium, the calcium strontium ratios for limestone in southern Spain. There. And suddenly it turns out that the shroud limestone, the sudarium limestone, not the shroud, the sudarium limestone is almost identical to limestone found in southern Spain and therefore less likely to come from Jerusalem. Certainly not to come from Oviedo. But of course, I think that's where the Sudarium did come from, southern Spain. And sure enough, the calcium strontium ratio of the limestone found on it actually demonstrates that. Isn't that fun? Well, I think that that I think that that's a pretty damning. Sorry um, if I've blinded you with science. No, no. <laughs> we, we love science. Uh, I showed that here. limestone uh, thing to to um, last week to Bob Rucker and Joe Marino, and they just looked at it. Bob said, "I I I I'd, I'd have to look at the data more carefully." <laughs> he couldn't believe that anybody had yes, when you <laughs> that anybody had taken I mean, the information you... and analysed it. It's just. It's even more damning when you're using the same argument. Yeah, you're using the same argument. And then you say, yeah, but if you add this data point, your argument doesn't support your yeah. conclusion now. It supports another one. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. but that's going to happen when your sample size is effectively three points. It's very easy to see a <laughs> fake trend when you've got three data points, you know. Yeah. But again, I don't. it doesn't necessarily prove that the sudarium came from southern Spain. I didn't test it against limestone from California or Toronto or, or Greenland. But if I had done, I've no doubt I could demonstrate that the Oviedo thing came was much more like, uh, you know, cloth from Carolina than it was from from anywhere in Europe or something like that. This sort of thing. This, this, so that I, shows I, that. It... Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that um, it, it I mean, it's, 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 it's sort of entrenched me in a way that I, I wish I didn't have to be entrenched in that. People go on and on and say how much research has been done on the shroud. Uh, and the fact is that I find that a little bit's been done, but no one has questioned it. No one's done more research uh, except myself. And it, it's I'm quite stunned at finding over and over again. I look at a paper and I go, yeah, but this doesn't say what you think it says. 
um, a little while ago, you probably the patch hypothesis. Are you familiar with the patch hypothesis? Of course you are. And the alleged um, invisible mending. Mm -hmm. um, and I said that I didn't think there was any invisible mending. And they said, yes, there is. We've discovered a, 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 a magical way, which was called French invisible mending. It was carried out by the French in the Middle Ages. And uh, there's only one company in the world that still does it. And they say that you can invisibly mend cloth so that you can't see the mend. And I said, really, what company is that? And they went, oh, it's a chap whose name escapes me. Ehrlich, I think his name is from uh, withoutatrace.com of, I think, Chicago. So I was the first person to go, yep, OK, here's a hanky. I cut a hole in it. Can you mend it for me invisibly? And he did, and it wasn't. And I posted it up on the Internet. And there you go. <laughs> invisible mending isn't invisible. And they went, no, 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 you're, you're, you're not using. We've got a book called the Frenway Invisible Mending System. I said, yes, that's the system that he's using. And they went, ah, but other, maybe there's another invisible mender who can do it better. So I said, yes, there is. The British, the uh, Invisible Mending Company of London. I sent them a piece of hanky as well with a hole in it and said, right, fix it. And they did. And that wasn't invisible either. And I'm the only person to have done this. And you just think, why, why hasn't people tested it out? Look at this. You're going to love this. Can you see what it is? Oops, perhaps I'll hold it this way up, make it easier. Yeah. It's not just a piece of cloth. It's a piece of three to one hand woven herringbone twill. It's the only piece of three to one hand woven herringbone twill to the exact proportions and dimensions of the shroud ever made. And who made it? Me, because I wanted to know whether it was possible and what it looked like and whether um, things would soak into it in the way that people claim, oh, yes, look at this. If you put ink on a cloth, um, you'll soak into it and it'll, it, 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 it's, you can't get cloth on the surface of fibres. Now, before your very eyes, ladies and gentlemen, here is some ink. And here is some cloth. And I'm going to scribble on it. And then I'm going to turn it upside down and show you. Oh, my goodness. It's only there on the uppermost fibers of the cloth. But that's impossible. It can only be done by a miracle or a genius. The most cunning little <laughs> of all time. You think, well, for goodness sake, why don't people do it themselves? I said to somebody, I, I, did you hear the one? I mean, you must have heard that the idea that the medieval forger, in order to get different shades of color, he must have had a brush that was about one um, tenth of a millimeter thick and selectively painted individual um, fibers so as he could either get dark areas or light areas. And that's still occasionally popped up by some experts on the shroud. And you think, well, wait a minute, what I've just done, there are darker areas and lighter areas. But I didn't carefully decide which threads to mark. I just did some of them a bit buffer and some of them a bit lighter. That's how you make pencil sketches. So 
you know, do people have people never actually seen any artwork? Well, funnily enough, I suppose that if your entire life is devoted to making atomic bombs, then perhaps you don't look at artwork very much. But there are other people who should know better. There you go. I that kind of calls to mind a comment that probably is the single most common comment I got, which is, well, modern science with all of our technology can't reproduce the shroud. And it, it seems like they have this idea, like every like all the apparatus of science is bent towards this question, when in fact, like like a few people look at it and like it's not nobody, but it's not like exactly the most the hotbed of research that people seem to think it is. Mm. <clears throat> well, uh, so, like, this CERN is out there trying to debunk the shroud. Well, I, I know you're um, you say that a lot. And I agree with you that it is the single commonest argument in favor of authenticity. You can go on and on and on about the science and, and authenticities will tend to agree with you. And they'll go. Yeah, but it couldn't have been done by humans, so it must be a miracle. And that's the last word on it. But I tend to say, somebody said, well, why haven't you done it? So I said, well, I want you to think of supposing somebody came to you with a cake in a tin and said, can you make a copy of this cake? And you said, yeah, of course I can. I mean, you know, I'm an expert baker, hand it over and I'll see what it's made of. And they go, no, you can't actually see the cake. But I can send you a photograph of it. Now can you make an exact copy of it? Work out the recipe, produce a cake from a photo. And you go, no, of course not. Hasn't anybody analysed it at all? And you go, well, yes, uh, we've, we've had some experts on it. And you go, oh, thank goodness for that. So we've got a list of ingredients from world-renowned chefs. No, no, we've got some RAF pilots specialising in atomic weapons. And you go... <laughs> yeah, yes, that's not really the kind of information I was looking for. Um, so the reason it hasn't been made is not because we don't know how it was made. Uh, our, our problem is not um, that we haven't any idea. We've got too many ideas. There are dozens of possible ways in which it was made. And the one that, that we need some um, art historians to examine it microscopically, as indeed they have things like... Um, Oh, uh, the, 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 the doubtful Leonardo da Vinci, the Salvatore Mundi, um, the, the, uh, the Mona Lisa and that sort of thing. Uh, they've looked you know, fragments of paint and fragments of this and, and, uh, and so on. There are a lot of, of forensic art historians detecting fakes, um, Rembrandts and so on. And uh, yeah, but we won't ask them. No, we, we'll ask some atomic physicists to work on it. So, you know, that's why I, I can't make one. That's why nobody's responded to David Rolfe's million pound challenge, because we don't know what to make. Well, that and plus like the, the David Rolfe thing, they're like, well, you'd make a million dollars. It's like, it wouldn't matter what I produced. That guy's not giving me a million dollars or pounds or whatever. Like that, that guy's not giving me a red cent, no matter what I produced. He <laughs> gave an interview the other day, which I thought was really interesting. And he said that if the shroud, uh, one of the conditions was that he would be able to film your experiment after you'd proved that it could be done. Um, one of the conditions before he gave you a million dollars was that he would make a film of it. <clears throat> and he said that would be such an explosive film 
that he'd make far more than a million dollars on the film than he would spend on giving you the um, million dollars for having disproved the authenticity of the shroud. I thought, oh, good for him. There was money in it after all. (laughs) There you go. Well, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to break all this down. The uh, it's, it's a really fun topic. It's there's a lot more. And even like this, this is just four, I guess I ended up doing five, five pieces, but there's, many more pieces that we could be talking about. So uh, where can people find your stuff if they want to learn more about the Shroud of Turin? Uh, the, the, the three major sources. The first is academia.edu. I've got three papers which are called The Medieval Shroud, The Medieval Shroud 2, and I'm a really creative uh, person, The Medieval Shroud 3. I thought that if you keep Medieval Shroud, then people find it easy to remember. So those three papers are on academia.edu. I have a little blog site, which is called medievalshroud.com. And that's where (laughs) I do a lot of my sort of scientific jiggery pokery and a certain amount of just humorous things as well. It's not, I mean, hardly anybody notices it's there and hardly anybody makes any comments. But I just post bits of research. My my favourite one being my my demonstration that the shroud was probably made in Hereford, um, Hereford, UK, because it's just down the road from where I live. But the evidence <laughs> for that turns out to be just as strong as the evidence that it was first century Jerusalem. In other words, none at all. Um, but it's it's there. Uh, and so on. And also my analysis of Giulio Fanti's latest dating um, escapades using the wax system and uh, Justin Robinson's adventures with coins, um, lots of analysis of the radiocarbon dating showing how it's, in fact, absolutely fine, and so on. And that's all on medievalshroud.com. And finally, if you go into Barry Schwartz's shroud.com uh, and type, oh, and, and, and go to the um, British Society for the Turing Shroud newsletter. Uh, page and type Hugh Ferry. I'm in lots of those. And it's all fascinating. We'll put, we'll put links to all that in the description so people can find that super easily. Um, thanks again for taking the time to uh, educate us all and our audience about the Shroud. Um, hopefully we can talk to you again in the future because there's no... I, I guarantee you this will not be the end of the Shroud debate. <laughs> but most of the comments will certainly be, yes, but he hasn't made one, so that proves it's original. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. True. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, well, thanks. Will, the, other, the other one will be from the um, extreme southern, whatever they are, evangelists, going, yes, but St. John says he was buried in strips, therefore the Shroud is a fake. That's the other principal True. reason for disbelieving. But well, that's the principal reason for believing in, in uh, that it's medieval. Because uh, because the King James Bible says it. And there we Well, who are we to question the King James Bible? <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again, Hugh. Really appreciate you coming on. Uh, guys, leave a comment down below telling us in excruciating detail why we're wrong and challenging us to make a million pounds by making a new shroud. You'll be the first one, I'm sure. Uh, and uh, hit like, comment, subscribe, do all the YouTube things, feed the algorithm. Uh, Until next time, remember, you've always got reason to doubt. Peace out.